Shine your light on your word, O Lord. By your spirit, let us see your wonder. For your justice outruns our sense of fairness. Your love overwhelms our deepest affections. Open our eyes, unstop our ears, and show us your most excellent way, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our first reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you, or the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading for this Christ the King Sunday comes to us from Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Hear what the Spirit is speaking today. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, Lord, when was it that you were hungry or thirsty or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? 
Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Let's pray. Destitute King, one with the hungry, the naked and the scorned. May our faith be proved not in dogma and piety, but in serving you in the last and the least. Through Jesus Christ, the stranger's Lord. Amen. Last year, September of 2022, we were visited by the Reverend Fursan Zamat, a Lutheran pastor from Jerusalem, and he preached to us on this very same passage. And he asked us in his sermon, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Does anybody remember how he answered that question? He said, yes, we are all sheeps. And we are all goats at the same time. And I think he is exactly right. That the Christian faith is not about being sorted into the right group, but instead honestly recognizing our goatish tendencies while hearing the voice of our shepherd who calls us his sheep. Today is Christ the King Sunday, the final Sunday in the church year, and next week is Advent, in which we begin the story of Christ anew, and Advent always begins in the hope of a newborn king. Well, today we conclude an entire year in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew, we haven't really talked about it this way, but it is, it is all about worldly kings versus Christ the King. Think back to how the gospel opens. The Magi coming to Bethlehem to visit the newborn king of the Jews. And when King Herod gets wind of this, what does he do? Tries to kill all of the boys under age two in Bethlehem to protect his own crown. This is how worldly kings work. That those on the margins are sacrificed to preserve those in power. But Herod does not kill Jesus. And our hope for a new king lives on. And Jesus grows up and lives into his royal identity. At his baptism, he is named God's beloved son, which is a royal designation. And right after that, he begins to call disciples to create an alternative kingdom to the one that Herod and Caesar proclaim. And this famous parable, the one we just heard, is Jesus' final piece of public teaching in the Gospel of Matthew before he goes to the cross. Do any of you remember what Jesus' first public teaching is in the Gospel of Matthew? I'll remind you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus' message about the kingdom of God has remained the same from start to finish. That God's blessing is not upon the wealthy and the powerful, but upon the poor and the grieving and the meek. The kingdom of God 
inverts worldly values and earthly kingdoms. The kings of this earth are all too willing to sacrifice those on the margins to protect those in power. But in God's kingdom, no one is expendable. And in this final parable, Jesus takes the same message of the kingdom and he remixes it one more time in a most memorable fashion. He begins, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Right off the bat, just this far in, I think we have two major misunderstandings about this parable. First, we hear this and think that Jesus is talking about a judgment that will come at the end of time. As though this parable is foretelling what will one day take place. But in the Gospels, Jesus is already on his throne. Christ is not waiting to one day be made king. His death, resurrection, and ascension, these are his enthronement. And as our Ephesians reading that Ethan read for us makes clear, Jesus is already seated at God's right hand, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And so this parable is not about a future judgment, but about the life of the nations right here, right now. That's our first misunderstanding. The second is about to whom this parable is addressed. The text says all the nations will be gathered before him, And unfortunately, our translation says, he will separate people one from another. So we hear that and we think this is a parable about individual people's salvation. But that word people doesn't appear in the Greek. It's a pronoun, autos. And the translators have decided it refers to people. But a literal reading would simply say them. And listen to how different that would be. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. Friends, this isn't a story about whether this individual person or that one is going to go to heaven or not. This is a story about how Jesus judges the nations of the earth in real time. It's about how the kingdoms of this world are judged by the world's true Evangelicals hear this parable and they think that it's about how to go to heaven when you die. Mainline Protestants hear it and they think it's about individual charity to the poor. But in reality, it's about how God judges the structures of our nation and our communities. Are we as a nation, a city, a community, are we attuned to the needs of the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the sick, and the prisoner? Or are we more concerned with making sure that those who are already prosperous remain prosperous? And these are are not easy questions, nor are there simple solutions. But until we are willing to allow the message of Christ's kingdom to transform not just our individual souls, but our community structures, we can be sure that the least among us will continue to suffer. Matthew Desmond is a sociology professor at Princeton University, a pastor's son, 
and a Presbyterian to boot. His most recent book, Poverty in America, examines why the wealthiest nation that the world has ever known has so much poverty. Desmond argues that wealthy Americans, whether they know it or not, benefit from the impoverishment of our fellow citizens. Desmond says we bear a moral responsibility to root out poverty at its core. I wonder where he got that idea from. And just one of many examples he gives is how our financial system collects $61 million per day from low-income families through payday loans, through overdraft, and check cashing fees. That's the structure of our system, folks. And however it got that way, that's how it is. And my retirement accounts benefit from that. And meanwhile, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these siblings of mine, you've done it to me. And friends, there are no easy answer here. But most of our efforts to address poverty, they treat symptoms, not causes. And both, both must be dealt with. It is a wonderful thing to pack 10,000 meals for hungry people in Somalia. It is truly wonderful. Because hungry people need to be fed. But here's the problem with hungry people. They get hungry again. And what are we doing to put an end to that? And over the next month or so, we're going to have all kinds of opportunities around here, as we always do at Christmas, and really all year round here at Covenant, to bring relief to people in need. And all of that is good. But Jesus invites us to do the harder work of changing the structures of our communities and our nation so that the marginalized are not sacrificed, but centered. Our own denomination has launched the Matthew 25 movement a few years ago. The Matthew 25 congregations are those who commit themselves to three things. Congregational vitality, that's the easy one. Dismantling structural racism and eradicating systemic poverty. It is a bold and audacious vision, one that will not be realized this year or next. But just imagine if for the last 2,000 years, if churches were committed not merely to saving individual souls, but to liberating entire communities. Will the slave trade have ever taken root in Europe and the Americas? Would poverty now be part of the dustbin of history sent into eternal fire? What could happen over the next 2,000 years if we take this vision seriously? And our congregation needs to decide, do we want to be a Matthew 25 congregation? When I began this series, I named it Include and Transcend, which I know is a little obscure. I understand you probably don't get it. That's all right. I haven't explained it very well. The idea is that Christ is inviting us to grow and to change in our faith, to not become calcified, but instead to mature. And change can be scary 
especially when we learn new ideas and perspectives. And as we learn those new ideas and perspectives, we can be tempted to throw out everything that came before. But true innovation comes from those who understand and respect their tradition, even as they challenge it. They include what's come before, even as they transcend to new understandings. And many of us were taught that the whole point of the Christian faith is so that individual souls might go to heaven. And that's not a bad thing. You can include the promise of life after death as you mature. But Christ's vision is so much deeper than that. God is not concerned merely with individual souls, but with entire communities and nations that our life together would reflect the compassion of Christ. And God is inviting us to not merely be charitable to the poor, but to see Christ in all things and all people, but especially the marginalized. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these siblings of mine, you did it to me. Reverend Zamat was right. We are all sheep and we are all goats. And Christ invites us to stand with the least. Some of you have asked me how Reverend Zamat is doing since the war broke out in Israel. He sent a letter to his supporters and it's very dark. He writes, today, forgive my frankness, we are planning how to die, not how to live. From 1967 until the 7th of October, I had true hope of a future for coexistence and I worked to make it a reality. And today our existence is at risk. Friends, we need you to stand beside us today more than ever. Truly, I tell you, just as you stood with the least of these siblings of mine, you stood with me. I made copies of Reverend Zamat's letter there in the back of the church, if you'd like to know what it means to stand with him. Despite appearances, Christ is king, both now and forever. And in times of great suffering and war, we often ask ourselves, where is God in the midst of what's going on in Israel and Gaza and Ukraine? I believe Christ is under the rubble with the traumatized. That's where he promised he'd be. Christ's kingdom is all in all, but it can be most readily and easily seen on the margins. Why is that? Because that's where mercy is most clearly needed. And God is mercy. The law of Christ's kingdom is mercy. Mercy for all, for you, for me, for those on the margins, even for those at the center. Mercy for all, until Christ is all in all. Amen.